Welcome to the GeoMob podcast, where we discuss geo-innovation in any and all forms, be it for fun or profit. Welcome back to another GeoMob podcast. This morning, it's my pleasure to be interviewing my good friend Maria Arias de la Reina, who I've known for quite a long time. She used to work at a company called Geocat, who many of my open source friends will know. She's now moved on and she's a senior Java software engineer at the open source company Red Hat. And that's a good point, Maria, to say hello to you. Welcome to the GeoMob podcast. Hi, thank you for having me. It's great to have you. So how's it working for Red Hat now? Well, it's quite different. Working, I have been working my whole life in small and medium companies, and now this is a huge company. It's even bigger now that IBM has bought it. And uh, I would say that the bigger change I notice is that now I can make more risks or more experiments, because in a small company, if you do something and it goes bad, it usually reflects big on the at the end of the year but here even if i mess up a lot and my team mess up a lot we are just a small percentage of the whole company so we are kind of encouraged to take risks so that is a big change of the scenery because now we can experiment a lot and we can do uh, things that we are not used to so instead of running after the technology and trying to keep state of the art and trying to, yes, running after the technology, we can now create the state of the art and we can now experiment with creating what is next technology or what is going to be the next uh, standard or the next protocol and be the ones that decide how to, or at least partly decide how to lead the technology. And that's a very big change. That is a big change, because I was just thinking, as you said that, that in the OSGEO world, most of the technology, not all, but most of it, is as good or better than existing technology, but it's not radically different. You know, a GeoServer is another map-serving technology, and we've been doing map-serving for 30 years. A desktop GIS is another desktop GIS. You're actually getting the chance to make completely new things and making them open source from the beginning. Yeah, that's in the geospatial world, we kind of go behind OGC or go behind other technologies that start outside of the geospatial world and then we adopt them and adapt them. And yes, we kind of not decide how OGC is changing the way of working. I, I love how the new WBS is, uh, WFS is evolving, trying to get the standard develop and evolve in a public repository where everybody can contribute. And that's kind of the thing that Red Hat has been doing for a long time. I mean, we need something new. We don't have any idea how to do it. We experiment and experiment and experiment with other companies or other developers until we have something that works for us. And then that kind of becomes the standard. But in, in the geospatial world, it's like we are just waiting for OGC to create a new standard and then we implement it. And it's a change of scenery. Right. So it occurred to me also that Red Hat, and I know they're now owned by IBM, but they still seem to be the 
the flagship company in open source. You know, when you talk about how people build a business around open source, people point at Red Hat and talk about their involvement and their contribution, particularly. They're not just making a living from open source. And it occurred to me that in the OSGO world, we used to have Boundless on a much smaller scale playing a similar role. But now they've large, since they've been acquired, they've um, largely withdrawn from that role. Do you think there's a need for a larger company to come into the open source geo world? I think it will be very healthy, not only one, but more than one, so we can kind of compete against each other to see who does it better. And it's true, maybe we have some companies like GeoSolutions that are filling the void that Boundless have live there. Yeah, we, we, we are not used in the geospatial world to these big companies that can afford to take risks. And that's important. Even after IBM bought Red Hat, one thing that we made clear from the beginning is that the idea was not to change Red Hat to IBM, but change IBM to be more like Red Hat. And that's something that, <laughs> yes, it's true because we were I mean, successful, they, they, they wanted to renew and innovate and, and that was one of the ways of doing it. So I feel kind of sad to see that Boundless in the end, yeah, it disappeared after the, the bot instead of trying to make other companies, make the company that bought it more open source and more close to the community. It's difficult to be a big company in investing in open source because it, it's tempting to say, okay, we are big enough to forget about open source and start doing protective license stuff and get a lot of money. But if you have this mind that comes from the leadership and is very strong in all the layers of the, in all the levels of the company, that open source is the answer and the right way of doing things, not just because it's profitable, but because it's good for humanity to have free and open source and free and open data and free and open standards and hardware and everything, then it changes everything because then you can use all that power to have as a big company to invest in open source. And I think that's something we are missing in OSEO or in the geospatial community. Some big companies that can use their power to invest in geospatial. Yep, I agree with you absolutely. And perhaps with people like you joining Red Hat, we might see Red Hat Geospatial in a year or so. I hope so. I, I'm trying to convince the, the salespeople that we have to, or we can add the Geospatial to the conversation because we already have the tools, we already have the software and the services. It's just we don't sell it as Geospatial, but it's Geospatial ready. Right. So that probably is a good point for you to tell me a little bit about what you're doing now at Red Hat, because you gave a, a stunning presentation a couple of weeks ago at the online phosphor G that we held, talking about, is it CAMEL? Yes, CAMEL and synthesis is integration processes, which is another way of saying data workflows or trying to connect different systems and make them work together. And it's a shame because I felt like 
the talk I gave was not good enough. I, I had a lot of a lot of things to share that I didn't share. And that's one of the drawbacks of being an online conference that I didn't see how the public was reacting. I need the, the audience feedback to to know if I can push more or less or explain more. So going back to what I'm doing now, it's integration processes, which is something that can work with spatial data. I mean, we all say data without the software is nothing and software without the data is nothing. Here, what we do is using middleware, like the glue between different components to make sure they interact, they share the data, they can merge the data together and modify it and analyze it or whatever you're doing. So you get some output of data. And that's, I think it's beautiful to see how all the pieces comes together to build bigger stuff. And even if you have a lot of protocols and um, formats that are standard and in theory, they all work together, you need some glue to pass the data from one place to another. And you need some glue to decide if you want to take this branch of the workflow or take this other path of the workflow and then maybe merge together. And it's something that it's, yeah, it's special, special already already. So I was watching your demo and thinking this, looks like an SME workflow on steroids or something, you know, because it seemed much smarter and it also seemed much faster. Give me an example, can you, of where you think from your experience in geospatial, you'd use these workflows rather than something more static, like a, a workbench, you know, type approach? Well, we have been trying to create, for example, crowdsourcing platforms that collect data from what people upload on the mobile phone. And maybe you have to pass that data through some quality assurance, maybe automated, maybe manually process. And then you want to store it. And then when you have a lot of data, you want to collect that data and maybe so from some other official or more less crowded sources, and then conflate everything, uh, homogenize, mix it and then you run some analysis and get some output from that will be one of the examples i have done in geospatial that will be better done with these tools so for example if i wanted to conflate some open street map data for great britain with some open data from ordnance survey i could use this kind of a workflow to bring the two things together and combine the attributes from both things onto a single set of objects? For example, maybe you don't even need different sources. You just want to collect open source, uh, open street map data and run analysis over it, like the what is the density of roads depending on the, I don't know, which country it is, or if it's close to cities or not. This kind of analysis right. you usually do it by by hand you do it manually you just collect the data in your computer then pass it to some algorithm maybe go through qgs maybe through i don't know and then oh, you get the output so it's it's the automating right. of this okay so i can think of quite a few people who are going to be looking at this and these are tools that you're using primarily in a non-geospatial world but that you were demonstrating a couple of weeks ago using in a geospatial context. Yes, because 
it connects to databases. Maybe it doesn't understand yeah. this is a coordinate and you have to reproject it, but you can call mm -hmm. PostGIS to do a bounding box. You can call Proj for, Proj for? No, it's no yeah, longer Proj for. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> you can call Proj to reproject or whatever you need to do. So it doesn't have the specific language of geospatial, but it's data and you go through some processes, you analyze it, you convert it, you transform it. And that's the things we are doing day to day in geospatial. Right. Okay. So jumping backwards, because I mentioned you keynoting at the Phosphagy Online conference a couple of weeks ago, and I noted just this morning that there's a, a camel online conference coming up in a few weeks as well. We're all getting used to the fact that we're not going to be going to conferences for a while. What do you think about conferences going online and the experience for different sorts of people? I think it has pros and cons. I mean, it's good to have conferences online because then you can get to more people. It's cheaper somehow, depending on how you do the conference. But then it's true that you are missing a lot of the human touch in the conferences. Even if we could, I don't know, buy some virtual reality glasses and try to walk in a conference venue virtually and meet people, it's not the same as when you are there and you have, maybe you see someone you have admired for years and then it's there by, you can barely, you can almost touch that person and you can go there and say hi. and. All that adrenaline, all that human touch is missing on online conferences. And it's good to have online conferences. I think we shouldn't drop that. I think we should even try to make more online conferences, try to make the regional and local conferences more important so people don't have to travel that much, so people can have a cheaper budget. Or It's, it's not only about money, it's also about trying to travel less for the for the ecological global warming reasons. But if we forget about the face-to-face, -face, we are going to lose a lot of the human touch. So it's hard to, to decide if, if you want to do an online conference. It's also what I was talking before about me missing the audience feedback when I'm talking. I, I usually adapt, I'm very dynamic, and the same talk in different audiences is completely different. And I only know how to talk to that audience when I'm in front of them and I see how they are reacting. So not having this feedback makes the, the talk much more, I wouldn't say boring, but just much more static. Yes, and when I first, I think the very first time or before I gave my first presentation ever to a large audience. Someone gave me some advice and they said, don't look at the whole audience, spot one person in the second or third row of the audience, make eye contact with them, and then occasionally look at them and gauge their response to what you're saying. And most of us work out these little techniques that we use when we're speaking to an audience. And of course, when we go online and we're just staring at a screen, we lose all of that, and it's, uh, it's very difficult, I agree, you know, and in fact, most of the speakers, you know, we had nearly 40 speakers at the Phosphagy Online, and most of them said the same sort of thing, you know, it's very difficult 
to talk just to a screen and not get any audience feedback and not be able to adjust your temp, your speed and your content as you go along. But on the other hand, we had nearly 100 people from India at that conference. Yeah, that you, you wouldn't have made that if, if it was in the UK and you have to travel there. So I think it's important to have online events online or at least not only the recording because later you can watch the recording, but there are thousands of videos on Internet. It's difficult yeah. to, to watch all of them, but having the chat, the, the chat is something that we should improve. Because when you left it free, so everybody can write anything, it was kind of a chaos. But at the same time, if you have to go through the moderator, that's something that maybe that's human. It's the humanity touch we are losing. Yes, I agree. You know, and I mean, when you go to a conference and you get excited about going to the conference because you know you're going to see people that you haven't seen maybe for a year, maybe for longer. And you, the first time you meet those people, the excitement, you know, you want to hug, you want to catch up, you want all of that sort of stuff. And you just don't get that when we're online. You know, I, I can't wait till we can start traveling to conferences again. But on the other hand, I don't feel great about burning airplane fuel and car fuel and all of that the environmental impact of conferences is absolutely horrible yes for first 2021 that's something we are trying to improve i mean we cannot remove all the all the pollution that comes from people traveling but we are trying to be as environmentally friendly as possible and that's something that has changed in the latest years because traditional conferences are very they generate a lot of a lot of waste and pollution and waste even in when you register and you go there you get a bag with a full of things you know you are just <laughs> going to throw it away to the trash so yeah. even those small things we can improve and if we improve also the online conferences and make the the face to face conferences less important that's going to be really great. So you mentioned Phosphor G 2021. Let me give you the opportunity to just tell everybody who's listening to us, where is Phosphor G 2021? Well, we hope, very strongly hope, it's going to be on Buenos Aires at the end of September. We are completely prepared to move online if we cannot travel by September 2021. But I hope that with one year more, we will be able to have some vaccine or something that stops this pandemic, or at least makes it bearable. And Buenos Aires is beautiful. Even if you don't speak Spanish, even if you think it's not a place you have thought you want to travel to, I think you should because it's beautiful. And people there are very friendly and it's a way of discovering places and people and societies that you may be very disconnected to if you are living, I don't know, in Canada or you are living in Russia or you are living in Australia. Maybe South America sounds exotically weird for you, but they are awesome. And that's one of the reasons I'm helping them hosting the conference there, even if I live in Spain, because I think the people there are just 
waiting to have some uh, international conference there to show all the amazing things they are doing. And I think it's going to be great. I absolutely agree with you. I'm so, so excited about Pasaji being in Buenos Aires. I can't wait to be traveling there. I just hope that, like you said, we've got the vaccine, we've found the solutions, that we've made the airplanes safe and that we can all go there and, and see each other again and learn from each other and, and also enjoy community. Because I think one of the things that open source specifically needs is it relies on community. Without a community, there is no open source software. It, you know, if it's just a few companies collaborating for their, their interest alone, that's not open source software for me. You, know, you need a community. You need people who have passion. And to build a community, we have to get together occasionally. We can't do it all the time from a screen and the internet. So um, let's pray and hope that... Uh, we can all get to Buenos Aires next September. I hope so. Okay, so I'm going to take you into a little area that both of us have talked about a couple of times, which is not, a t well, it's not really a tech subject. It's imposter syndrome. And I think two years ago when you were in, we were both in Gimaraish for a Phosphor G conference, you gave a keynote and you talked about imposter syndrome. And I listened to you in the audience and it resonated with me. And we both talked about it afterwards and were surprised that the other one experienced imposter syndrome. And so two years on, how are you feeling about that? So it was very helpful for me to hear that you also suffer imposter syndrome because I don't know how it looked from the outside, but I was completely scared of doing this talk. The idea came from starting to collaborate more with women in tech associations and groups because I realized that they think they don't know things they know. They think less than they are. They really are. They are lacking a lot of confidence. They are not applying for jobs. They would completely qualify. And I started researching about this. I discovered the imposter syndrome and I realized I also had this because, well, when I, I still don't believe I have been the OSGEO president. I really don't believe that. It's like, okay, that was an alternative universe. Maria was cool on that alternative universe. She was the OSGEO president, but that was not me on this universe. I, I, I was never that. So I, I really thought I may be uh, firing at my feet. That's a Spanish expression, I think. Uh, I was, it was something bad to talk about the imposter syndrome for me personally, because it's like becoming vulnerable to other people. But then I realized that it was completely the other way around. On Gimmerage, I, I got your feedback and I got some other feedback that was very positive. But on the, when I repeated the talk on the, on the Tanzania, I got people crying, coming, coming to me after the talk, crying, saying, Maria, you don't realize what you have done with this talk. Okay, I, I was just saying that I don't feel qualified enough. Yes, but there's a lot of people that suffer from this syndrome, especially from underrepresented communities. But as you point out, you also suffer this. It's something that happens to more people than 
uh, that we realize, and it's something important to point, we should be more confident. I mean, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, that is it. What's the worst that can happen? But but when you don't feel when you don't feel worthy, when you don't feel qualified, you magnify the worst that could happen into something really terrible. It's like when you go for a job interview and you mess up. What's the worst that could happen? You won't get that job and you'll get another job afterwards. You know, it's but we do all feel this. And um, I listened to a pitch, um, an, an investment pitch from somebody who was talking about uh, some recruitment software. And one of the things they told me in this, which it was about recruitment software that would help improve diversity. And they said that if you have a job advert and there's a list of mandatory must-haves and a list of nice-to-haves or good-to-haves, when a woman looks at that job advert, if she doesn't have one of the must-haves, she probably doesn't apply for the job. If a man doesn't have one of those must-haves, he apparently thinks, well, I've got four out of five of the must-haves, so I'm going to have a go for that job. And that's two completely different perspectives. And I think it just indicates how easily we allow our sense of inadequacy or our concern about our limits to constrain us from doing things. And um, you know, I found it very empowering listening to you talking about imposter syndrome and then being able to go up on the stage to give my keynote at the end and actually say out loud to everybody that I felt like an imposter as well, which I did, you know. I mean, here I am, someone who's not a technologist, someone who's relatively new in this community, and I'm being asked to give a keynote at a conference, you know, and I'm thinking, what do I know that is worthy of being called a keynote? But, you know, as you said, what's the worst that can happen? Yeah, I'm always surprised when you say you you are new to this you're not new to this community you have done a lot i i think you are on the top i don't know 20 30 of people that have contributed most and then you still think you don't belong on a keynote it's weird to me to hear that and about this i i just retweeted something i read on twitter about someone saying that i don't know if you have heard that Kane West, which is a famous person, in, yeah. he just he's said he's a rapper, that, isn't he? Yeah, he wants to run for the USA presidency, and it's <laughs> like, okay, this is the best example of a man who doesn't qualify for a job, but he just applies for it because what's the worst that can happen? That he loses? That's it. Finish. Well, actually. <laughs> Maria, I think we know what the worst that could happen is yes. because we're we're staring at the example now of a man who's not qualified and who said, what's the worst that can happen? And we're all learning it. Um, but I don't think that applies to you or me. You know, I mean, I think um, and I think that the reason I wanted to have this conversation with you is because there will be somebody listening to us who thinks, oh, Maria's, uh, you know, Maria's been the president of OSGO, you know, and she's a super high-tech developer, and Stephen Feldman's 
run conferences and talked all the time. And they'll think, you know, we're confident and we can do these things. And they're thinking, I wish I could be like that. And the answer is that actually everybody has it in them to do this, you know, serve your time, do the stuff and you're not an imposter. Yeah, even, so, even the smallest contribution to the community is big. There's, yes. I mean, it's a community, it's full of people contributing, but most of them are just doing small things every now and then. It's not a constant thing they are doing. It's not something that they invest, I don't know, 10 hours per week. Most of the contributions are small and that doesn't mean they are less important. It just means that, oh, that's the time they have. Yep. And absolutely, from, you know, we build a... We build software from lots of little contributions. We build a, contrib a community from lots and lots of people doing different things. You know, the people who write the code, the people who don't, don't write the code. You know, when I first started in, in the OSGO world, when I first joined, I thought you had to write code to be a member of the community. And you don't, you know. There's lots of stuff that needs doing that doesn't require you to know anything about writing code. And I... I think you're right when you say it's all the little con contributions that make make the community and make the software. So um, if you're listening to us, and if you didn't think you could, the answer is you can. So my last question for you, Maria, which is something that gets us away from tech, away from our dark fears before we step up on the platform. When you're not working, what is it that you're doing? I have a very active life on the technological ecosystem in my city, national in general. I'm part of women in tech groups, Geoinquietos, which is the Ostio Spanish brand, mm -hmm. uh, Java user groups. But I could more or less consider that work, I guess. So after that, I think I'm a pretty standard geek because I like board games, I like role playing. I like science fiction, so I think I'm a pretty standard geek. <laughs> so who's your favorite science fiction writer? It used to be Asimov, but it's true that recently I discovered women writing science fiction, like for the last year, so I'm reading them. I don't have a favorite there, but for sure I love more the, the, the science fiction written by women. I don't know if it's because I'm a woman and I kind of have some kind of connection there, but I like a lot the science fiction written by women. Have you read, oh, now I'm going to embarrass myself terribly because I can't remember her name properly. I think it's Sixin Liu, the Chinese writer. Oh, I don't remember any Chinese writer because usually okay. I, read in, I read in English. And I don't no, she she's been translated into English. Yes, she's been translated in. But I don't remember reading anything translated. So okay, right. So I'm going to send you afterwards and post the link on this because it's for tech geeks. This is absolutely brilliant science fiction. It's a trilogy, and I'll send you the details afterwards. Okay, thank you. For the five or seven years that I've known you on Twitter, you've been Delawen. I don't even know if I've pronounced that correctly. I've probably mangled it. What is Delawen? Well, when I started surfing the internet, I was reading the Lord of the Rings at the same time. And well, 
it was a silly name, sounded kind of elfish, so with the Gwent animation. Uh. But then it's it's fun, the story, because it means something like Lady of Horrors or Horrific Lady, but it's grammatically incorrect. And even being uh, grammatically incorrect, so that means that I made it up and there shouldn't be more people calling like this. But at some right. point, at some point, there, there is this kind of uh, automatic names generator for fantasy world games or whatever that started incorporating Delaware. So for the first 10 years or so, I was the only Delawan in the world. And now there's a lot of people that gets called Delawan, even some men. And it's like, okay, the one termination is lady, literally, <laughs> but okay. <laughs> okay, so you're a Lord of the Rings fan as well. Okay. Yes. Um, now that makes sense. And all of a sudden I can see, I always thought that, yeah, because of your surname, that Dorener, I was wondering whether it was, yeah, anyway, I've got there. I've got there and thank you. Maria, it's been a pleasure chatting to you this uh, this morning. We've gone on longer than I thought we would do, which always happens because I'm lousy at controlling the time. If people want to get in touch with you to ask you about camel and stuff at Red Hat or anything else or about imposter syndrome or geoinquietus, phosphagy in Buenos Aires next year, how should they contact you? Well, I'm on Twitter, I'm on LinkedIn, and my email is delawen at gmail, so you can okay. contact me there. Okay, that's brilliant. Maria, thank you very, very much indeed. Thank you. It has been very fun. Thanks everyone for joining us today and listening to the GMOP podcast. Hopefully you've enjoyed the discussion. Please don't hesitate if you have any feedback for us or any suggestions for topics that we should cover in the future. You can get the show notes over on the website, which is at thegeomob.com. While you're there, if you're not yet on the mailing list, please do get on the mailing list where we once a month send out an email announcing future events, summarizing past events, and just generally sharing uh, events that you may find of interest. You can also, of course, follow us on Twitter, where our handle is geomob. You can follow Steven at Steven Feldman. You can follow me at Fryfogel. You can check out Mappery at mappery.org. And of course, if you need any geocoding, please check out my service, which is opencagedata.com. We look forward to you joining us again at a future episode and of course, seeing you at a future GeoMop event. Hope to see you there soon. Bye.